Hopefully this morning as you were hearing the Old Testament reading, you were picking up on a prevalent theme in there, and that is the emphasis that Scripture places on work in the lives of believers. It's evident if you spend any time in the Proverbs at all, you will see that lethargy and sloth and slackness and sluggers are roundly condemned. They are not held in high esteem. And there's a multitude of reasons for mocking those who refuse to work or who are reluctant to go to work. From the moment of man's creation, we read in Genesis 2 that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it, to serve and to guard in it. Immediately thereafter, the woman is, is given to him as a partner in the work. It says in 2.18, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Of course, we know that what happened after the fall is that what began as something that was delightful and fruitful, that was rewarded abundantly, becomes painful thereafterwards. Genesis 3.19, we read after the fall that thorns and thistles will come forth from the toil of man, that in the sweat of his face he would, eat breast, he would eat bread until he returned to the ground. We know that, that, that work is, is demanding, it requires much of us, it's exhausting and it's painful, but it's also a life-giving endeavor. Even in the curse that's placed on man, God says that he will be fed by it, even though it will be painful. Of course, we know the call to work is, is found everywhere in Scripture. You can even think within the Ten Commandments. And the, the command that we have on the Sabbath, the command to rest, is also fixed within it a call to work. Pastor Robbins continually reminds us of this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Six days we, we are given as part and expected to be normal in our lives that we would work on those days. The Old Testament frequently makes much of work in other ways. Again, from Proverbs, we're reminded of the consequences of not working. Proverbs 19.15, we're told that laziness casts one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. It's expected, but when you don't work, you don't eat. We also learn that it causes deprivation. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. The lazy man, says in Proverbs 24, will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Poverty is expected to follow the lack of work. Proverbs 10.4, he who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. You heard this in the Old Testament reading. We're also told in Proverbs 12.24 that not working can result in compulsory work. There we read, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. The lack of work is not only lack of production, but it is also a destroyer. Proverbs 18.9 says, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. And again, Proverbs 21.25 20, 20, takes it to another level. It says, the, de- the, the desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. If you were to turn and to look at Proverbs 24, you would see Solomon says this is something that is worth giving attention to. He says we should study this. In fact, that's what he does. Listen to Proverbs 24, 30. He writes, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, social poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. 
Work in this fallen world. We expect to be accompanied by pain. We expect it to be toil. We expect that it's not going to be as rewarding as it might be. We expect that there are going to be times where it's going to be difficult in doing it, but we also expect to work. Whatever the difficulties that go along with it, we still work. The New Testament sharpens that image. It's not only talking about the the potential for destruction and loss and for want because of that, but it it also points us, and I think that's what we're going to find in our passage this morning. We're pointed towards higher motivations for why we do our work. Our passage will help us, and so let's pray the Spirit would open it up to us that we might glean from this what it would teach us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we desperately need your Spirit to work in us, even as we hear the Word. It is the true Word of God. Your Spirit has given it and inspired it, Lord, but we are hard-hearted people and reluctant to hear. We are frequently deaf, and it requires your continual opening for us to hear these words, to believe them, and to obey them. And so do your work this, this, this morning, Lord, even as we consider this passage, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage this morning, you are called to, to what you might call self-minding and self-sufficiency. And so it's certainly going to point us to work. And here's, the, here's sort of the direction I want to go if you're looking for an outline. Uh, I want to go back and consider the situation in Thessalonica. It's been a little bit of time since we've, we've looked at that, sort of what is going on culturally, because in part that helps you understand what's taking place in this passage. And then to, to reset this in the context of the passage you, that you heard uh, in verses 9 and 10 are not what's being looked at especially, but I want to remind you of what's there because it's definitely tied together. And then I want to take you to what Paul points to as, as aspirations or ambitions for his people in this respect, those three that the passage identifies, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, and also to set those in the context of particular goals or motivations uh, for those. And so again, let me remind you of, of what's going on uh, to this church to which Paul is writing. This is the church that's in Thessalonica. It's in Macedonia. It's sort of the northern part of, of modern-day Greece. Back in, in, in the time in which Paul was writing, it was probably a city of about 100,000 people. Uh, it was known as a metropolis, which if you don't know the translation on that, it's a mother city. And so this was an important sort of foundational city in Macedonia. And it was also a, had a particular situation politically speaking in the Roman Empire in that it was designated a free city. And the way that it had become a free city was that the various governors of the city over the, the, the past history had always sort of uh, been careful in which side they chose in, in Roman civil wars. And they always seemed to pick the winning side. They were sort of loyal to the party that was in power. And this was always rewarded. It was rewarded such to the degree that they became a free city, which meant that they could govern themselves. They could set their own tax bases. They didn't have to pay a continual tribute to the empire. Uh, they, could set, they could even create their own educational system. All these things they were sort of autonomous in. It was a great benefit in the empire to have this. But it was also covered with the sort of the shadow of the emperor kind of hovering over the, over the, the city that if there was any sort of break from that loyalty, that all those things would be put in danger. Your taxes could change radically overnight. In addition to the the relationship to the empire and the emperor was also the relationship the city had with idols. Archaeologists and historians have pointed out that Thessalonica had just as many gods that they worshipped as Athens. there There was hardly a difference between them. We just know Athens much more. They worshipped Artemis, Apollo, Aphrodite, Zeus. They also had a host of Egyptian gods that they worshipped. 
And all of these were, were, were deeply embedded into the culture. They were part of how people made their money. They were part of the civic life. The, the games and, and, and events in the town, the various festivals were all attached to them. And so to separate yourself from them in any way was to put yourself in danger. It wasn't simply a, a question of, you know, do I pick South Carolina or do I pick Clemson as my team I'm going to root for? Uh, there, were, there were definite costs financially to not being associated with it. It was a dangerous thing. You couldn't easily opt out of it without causing yourself trouble. But then there's a third relation or a third element of how the city sort of operated that we haven't talked about. And, and this was sort of the relationship in the, the sort of the upper stratosphere of society. But it actually affected a large part of people. And it's what are known as, as patron relations or client-patron relationships. And what this is, I think it's something that you will see would be, is recognizable. It's a smaller part of the world uh, in which we live. What would have been much bigger in their world. But it's a, it's a structure of reciprocal uh, benefits that are given to people as part of this sort of weird situation that's not codified in law, but sort of everyone understands. And one commentator, he described it this way. He said, clients were those uh, attached to patrons of higher status and economic solvency, uh, rich people. And he said, hoping, they were attached to them, hoping to receive from them benefits such as food and representation. While they gave their patrons honor and augmented their status in society by showing up for the morning greeting at their home and giving them public support. The more clients a person would have, the more important he or she would appear to others. Honor was the name of the game. So basically what you had were, were super rich people who were paying other people to fawn all over them. And it was literally part of this, this civic arrangement. If you were a client, is that you would literally go in the morning, you'd go and greet the patron at the patron's house, and they, you would walk from their house with them to the city square. And the more clients that you had in the train following you on the way to the city square, the more important you obviously were. It was a, a very strange and profitable fiction because these people, some people had enough money that they could keep people on the dole. They could retain their services of having their social status accumulated to them. It was sort of like a, having an, an advertising or a social media company sort of managing your image. Uh, that's the, sort of the, the modern day equivalent. And, and you could see how this was sort of a normal sort of a thing in this town. They had the fiction of, of sort of treating the emperor as if he were a god. They had the fiction of the false gods that, that they purported to give their worship to from these you know, different, uh, different continents even. And this was one more way in which they were sort of living a, a, a fiction as part of their normal life is that you had people who were pretending to make someone glorious who was not glorious and they were paying them to do that. It was normal in the world in which they lived. And Paul is called to speak truth into this kind of a world. Let's go back to our verses that we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. The other part of the context of this passage we read is in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Paul had, had called them to this brotherly love. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. That this was part of how they were supposed to understand themselves as a believer. That it was essential to who they were as a member of the body of Christ. Is that they were a people who was called to love. Of course, Christ taught this was the chief commandment. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. So you also must love one another. 
And he said, in the verse that follows that, in John 13, 35, he says, this is the defining mark of a believer. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But in addition to, to that reorient them and reminding them that their call is to love, he reminds them also that they're family. That they're not just, they're just another civic relationship. It's certainly not like this relationship that sort of ordered the society in which they lived. Instead, they were to see themselves as connected in a way that they wouldn't naturally do so. And this is, again, was what Christ taught them, is that they are family. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, his, his biological kin came looking for him. They're trying to get hold of him. They needed something from him. And Jesus responded in Matthew 12, 45, 49 in this way, it says, and he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And of course, it's part of his last words on the cross as well. John 19, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he's, as he's, he's grunting out these last few words with the breath that he has, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Paul is, is echoing this family love that Christ has called his disciples to from the very beginning. He's echoing that family love and he's telling them this is who you are and in it you are to increase more and more. But that love also is it to work itself out. And how you live in community. It's going to become a specific manifestation of love that's going to show up in your daily life. What does that look like? Well, we come now to our verse in verse 11. Paul gives them motive and he gives them direction. He says, and that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you. That, that sentence begins with a conjunction. He, he, you can't see it in the English translation, but it actually begins in Greek with the word and. It's, it should be read uh, as, as, as something that's, that's coming together, that belongs together as part of that previous part of the passage. And he's filling out that picture. He says, we urge you to excel more and more and to aspire. Now, the word aspire is, is interesting. This is, this is another one of these fun Greek words. I, I, Pastor Robbins would get on to me for doing Greek studies from the pulpit, but they're fun. Uh, and this one's especially fun because it's a great compound word. And this is the kind of word that you can get a hold of. And the word here is, uh, is philotimisthai, uh, which is a combination of two words. The philos part, you, most of you know at this point, it means to love. Uh, and the second part is from the word time, which is the word from which we, uh, we would translate that as honor. And so the word that you'll see in your English translation as aspire or ambition is literally to love the honor of something. And Paul is encouraging his people, and it, it's, this is a, an appropriate way to translate that, is to, to love the honor of doing these particular kinds of things. Uh, and if we look how Paul uses this, this word, it's only used a couple of other times in the New Testament, but Paul connects it to something there. Let, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 20. Paul talks about a specific way in which he is attempting to honor Christ. Romans 15, 20, he says, And so I have made it my aim, my ambition, my love of honor to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. 
Paul has this desire to spread the word of who Christ is and what he's accomplished. It's his aspiration, his honor, his ambition. It's something that he loves to do because of who he's doing it for. Because of who he's doing it for. And then turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul there is speaking again of his apostolic ministry, both of preaching and of suffering. And he says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, therefore we make it our aim, our ambition, our aspiration, our love of the honor, that whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He's saying, wherever I go, whatever I do, I want it to be characterized by obedience, by pleasing Christ. Everything that, that I, I endeavor, I set forth, that I try to do when I go into a, into a community and I begin to preach there and I begin to labor among the people, all of that is meant to be pleasing to Christ. And as we come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find out it's not far off here as well. It's, it, it's tied in. It's a, it's a similar kind of ambition or aspiration where because of the love of something, life is reordered. And we know this is true. This is what happens to us is that when we have love for things, it changes how we live. If we have a love of pleasure, we make choices in accordance with that love. If we have the love of a particular woman or a particular man, then it will change our actions, maybe for the rest of our life. It will be reoriented by that. If we love riches or fame or power or any of those less noble things, then we will organize our life around getting those things. And you see it happening all the time around you. Love steers us, it, it, it orients us, it moves us, it shapes the kind of choices that we make and the actions that we take. And Paul would have you be steered by a love, but in this case, in the love of that which is honorable before God. Not pride, not self-importance, but Paul would have you be steered by honoring the Lordship of Christ over you. Saying that because of who you are, because of what Christ has done for you, because of the price that he's paid, your life should be different. It's the most worthy ambition that you can ever possess, is to make something of yourself which is actually making something of Christ. Paul is going to color that for us, lest we be driven to self. In verse 11, he points us in those three particular directions with those three exhortations. Look there again at the first one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. He says that you aspire to lead a quiet life. It's a single word in Greek, that you aspire to quiet. Uh, and we, we know that as believers, there are times in which we are not called to be quiet. We are not called to, to, to be still. Paul, if you look at his life, he was frequently very loud and very active. He made himself known when he was convinced and convicted that he had the truth. He, he went out of his way and at whatever cost to himself, he made that known. But he's pointing us in the direction of what's going to ordinarily characterize how we live. The kind of decisions that we're going to make in this world. And he tells us, he, he, he points us in that direction that there's something radically different about how a, a believer's life is shaped. This was, this was actually part of the, the coloring of, of the life that we would live in the Old Testament. You find this in multiple ways. If you look at a Greek Old Testament, you could find it translated um, in various places. But, but turn, turn with me back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30. We're going to find multiple examples where Isaiah wants to use this word and he wants to use it in a certain way. He uses it to contrast righteousness with rebellion Isaiah 30 verse 15 one example Isaiah 30 verse 15 
We read, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness. Same word. In quietness, in confidence shall be your strength. But then he says, But you would not. It was there for you. It was being offered to you. There was a life I was giving you, a life of peace with me. But you chose otherwise. Isaiah 32, 17, a couple of chapters over. Isaiah 32, 17, we read, The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Isaiah 57, 20, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. It's reminding us that, that, that the life of the believer is to be characterized by a, a quietness, a stillness, a, a, a sense of peace because of the peace that's been made between us and God. We can see striving and know that he is God. The New Testament, whenever it talks about this, it's going to use this word in a couple of different contexts which, which speak to us. The, the, the most common context is speaking to us of when this quiet is, is appropriate is, is in conjunction with Sabbath. As it belongs to the Sabbath day. It is meant to be a resting, a quiet from the ordinary working that we have. But then there's a second time that it's used, and that's when you become rightfully silent because you've been overwhelmed by the argument of your opponent. You've, you've been marveled or awestruck, awestruck or defeated, and so you realize, you know what? I need to shut my mouth. <laughs> no one needs to hear me again on this. I've been silenced on this. And Paul points us in this direction. He says that, that the life of the believer is to be that kind of a quiet life. It involves resting. It, resol- it, it involves a, a lack of striving on our part because of the confidence of who we are and because of what's been done for us. Philo, who was a, a, a Jewish philosopher, he was a contemporary of Paul, not that they ever interacted, uh, but he was a philosopher in Alexandria. And, and he used this word to describe a certain kind of person. And I think Paul would, would agree with, with how inappropriate this kind of behavior is in this, in this description. But he's worth listening to on this. Philo wrote, he said, Besides the worthless man whose life is one long restlessness, haunts marketplaces, theaters, law courts, council halls, assemblies, and every group and gathering of men, his tongue is let loose for unmeasured, endless, indiscriminate talk, bringing chaos and confusion into everything, mixing true with false, fit with unfit, public with private, holy with profane, sensible with absurd, because he has not been trained to that silence, the same word Paul is using, which in season is most excellent. My mentor in college had a saying that that maybe you've heard some version of before, it's it's attributed to Mark Twain sometimes, but he said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah, some of you know that, I like that. That's pretty close to biblical. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perspective. Shut shut your mouth is not a bad word. It's biblical. It's here. It's appropriate for us to shut our mouths. Sometimes Christians can't stay quiet. Paul and and Peter, they proclaim the gospel to, to, to large crowds. It was not a time for quiet, but ordinarily a Christian does well to hold his peace to be at rest, to be restrained in his opinion, to not let people hear his voice. A Christian should be one who is reluctant to make himself known and his opinions known. Matthew Henry, a a better one to describe this than myself, he says, it is the most desirable thing to have a calm and quiet temper and to be of a peaceable and quiet behavior. This tends much more toward our 
our own and others' happiness. And Christians should study how to be quiet. We should be ambitious and industrious how to be calm and quiet in our minds. In patience to possess our own souls and to be quiet towards others. Or of a meek and mild and gentle and peaceable disposition. Not given to strife, contentions, or divisions. I think he said this. This is very helpful. He says, Satan is very busy to disquiet us. And we have that in our own hearts that, dis, that disposes us to be disquiet. Therefore, let us study to be quiet. It's an appropriate ambition. It's appropriate aspiration. It's a thing to love the honor of is the honor of being quiet. Well, Paul goes on. He points you to a second honor that, that you might love and that you might pursue, strive for. He says that you also aspire to mind your own business. Uh, you can sing about that. Pastor Robbins, I think he, he addressed it recently. I can't remember if he sung or not from the pulpit. I'm not going to. But we do well to mind our own business. And Paul, again, he's, he's pointing in a direction. He's saying that you need to be careful about you and what you do with you. That you have plenty to do with your own self. But I, I had a conversation with my brother this past week. He'd gone, he'd gone to the, my, my hometown, Santa Ana, Texas, um, you represent about half the population just kind of in this room of, of Santa Ana, Texas. It's, uh, it's not well known on most maps. Um, and, and, and as my brother was there, my brother, my brother was with my dad and they'd gone to the, to the, the local cafe and it's, it's that kind of cafe that you would imagine. Uh, a little coffee shop and the food is pretty greasy. Grace, is, she's been there a few times. And while he's in there, he's visiting with people and, and, and there's this, this man who's there and somehow the topic came up of the Texas Rangers. And the Texas Rangers had just won the World Series, and so they were talking about it. And one of the, one of the guys at the table, he said, yeah, I didn't really know about that. Um, and he said, why not? And he goes, well, I don't have a TV in my house. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Uh, he says, yeah, I don't have a radio either. And some of you are going, well, like, you just pull out your laptop, and you could, you could get, you know, information there. He didn't have a laptop. He, if he had a laptop, he wouldn't have Wi-Fi. Uh, this was a man who was completely out of the loop in world affairs. The man knows nothing of Hamas. He knows nothing of school shootings. He knows nothing about the, the price of stocks right now. He's not checking on any of those things. You know how he knows the weather? He walks outside and then he'll adjust accordingly. And that's not to say this man is especially noble. I do not know a thing about this man other than the story that just seemed ridiculous from my brother that was telling it to me. But here's a person who's unaffected emotionally by Twitter, uh, by what's on Instagram, what's on Facebook, or what's on YouTube, or what you would find anywhere else to, to shape your emotions for the day. They are not part of who he is. And yet here's a man, lest you think that he's a recluse or a hermit, he was at the cafe, he was interacting with people there that are part of his community, he was interacting with a stranger who had come into his community. He was very much about being where he was in that moment. And I suspect, knowing most of the people who are in that area, that be in his situation, he takes care of his own business. He takes care of his business, and he's not too worried about anybody else's. That should be instructive for us, that it's possible to live life that way. And I'm not saying that you have to do it just like him. I'm not saying that, that that's what you need to do, but just to remind you that you can live differently. You can make choices. You can say no to certain things so that you can say yes to other things. And Paul would say the direction in which you go for those is to be about your work. And again, where would Paul get this idea to be about your own work? Would it not be from our Lord Jesus Christ? Busybodies and, and work avoiders and gossips and procrastinators, those are all being condemned by what Paul says here. All of those are the antithesis to, to, mind, to minding your own business. And they're also the antithesis to Christ. 
John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 17, Jesus answered and said, my father has been working until now and I have been working. John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. John 17, he writes, or he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Friends, your salvation is tied up into Jesus minding his own business, to him doing the will of the Father, to completing everything that was required of him that you could go to heaven, that you could have life eternal and be rewarded in ways in which you never deserve because he made the choice to be about that work that was given to him by his Father. Again, Paul points us in a a third way, part of this ambition that you can see how these all kind of meld together. Paul says that you also aspire to work with your own hands. And this is a completely straightforward command that he gives. Use your own hands for your work. Speaks to the fact that that in that world there were people who were preoccupied with other things. Some have have come to the conclusion that that in 1 Thessalonians that is perhaps of what we read that they were were anticipating the the day of judgment and wrath that it would be soon that that God would come and so they decided to shut down operations and that's possible that that people could make those wrong conclusions about the imminent approach of, of, of the day of reckoning with God. But it's very likely as well, what's probably more common is that most of us can't look that far ahead, and, and, and it takes so much faith to see that, that that doesn't usually steer us, but what's more common is we're just driven by the everyday of getting ahead. And we want to find that system that will get us ahead, and what many people were doing is, as we said before, they found a system in which they could get ahead, which, which they could make progress in the world that didn't involve them doing ordinary work. They had lost that, that dignity, that straightforwardness of just kind of working with their own hands. And they had probably lost the ability to, to look on that kind of work as dignified. Do you remember when Paul went into the communities? He preached the gospel. He did so free of charge. And the way that he did it free of charge was he set to work when he was there. He didn't want there to be any distraction. And so he was a tent maker. And he used his tent maker to, 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 his, his tent making to, to provide for him while he was there. So he didn't have to be dependent on anyone else in that situation. I think he'd go on and do the next thing. But these were people that, that had that abandoned the ability to look at work as dignified. They, they liked art, but they didn't like the artisan. They, they, they liked the food, but they didn't like the, the farmer or the baker. They, they liked the fabrics, but they didn't, they didn't like the, uh, uh, the rancher, the, the, the weaver, or the dyer, the, all that were involved in that process of making this, this beautiful thing for them. And you know this is something that's true in our world. We, we can be driving by a construction site and you look at people and say, man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. And there might be a reason to be glad not to be that guy. But are you appreciative of their work? Do you see how essential it is for your well-being, for your life, for what people are contributing and the ways in which they do? You have to be reminded your, your work is not better because you're paid more for it. That's not how God looks at it. Your work is not more honorable because more people know your name. Your, your work is not more dignified because your fingernails are clean at the end of the day. That doesn't make for good work. It doesn't make you honorable to God. You shouldn't take it the wrong way either that, that it's not the opposite of that. Just because your work is dirty or because you are sweaty at the end of the day or your fingernails are dirty or nobody knows your name, that also doesn't make your work good and it doesn't make it pleasing to God. Your work is your work. It's your own work to do. I would say to work with your hands, to to do what you can do with what you have, with the resources that are yours to accomplish what you can so long as it is fruitful and it is good and it is lawful in the sight of God. 
Being a sycophant has seemed to be the case with some of those people was not an honorable profession. Being a beggar is not an honorable profession. Being dependent on handouts is not honorable for people. It's not honorable either to live as a trust fund baby, to not work because you don't have to. I had an uncle, Benny Jack Garrett. Benny Jack Garrett was one of the last people to, uh, to become infected with polio before the SOG vaccination had come and, 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 and it and was, was in mass distribution. He was one of the last people as a 16-year-old. He, he, he contracted polio, and as a result, he became a quadri, quadriplegic. He was paralyzed from his neck down. Uh, the only thing he could do is he could remove a, one pinky on his right hand, and he could kind of move his head sort of side to side, and that was it. He was wheelchair-bound, uh, bedridden. This was how he lived his life. And yet, this was a man who was working he found what he could do. He actually was, was very good at doing people's taxes and people would bring him their paperwork. They'd lay it out before him. They would prop him up and he would use a kind of a little uh, stick he had in his mouth with kind of like an eraser, kind of rubber sticky thing on the end of it. And he would turn the pages as he looked at the various documents and told people what to do. He didn't have a calculator. He had his brain and he was very good at what he did. He contributed to his household doing this. Pinky and a neck as he had in his brain, but he used what he had. You have limitations. There are only so many kind of things that you can do, that you should do, that are appropriate for you, but you have a vocation and a calling which belongs to you with who you are. Paul would say again, 1 Thessalonians 5, we'll come to it eventually. He says, we exhort you, brethren, we warn, admonish you that those who are unruly, those who are disordered, who who set themselves outside of the regular order, he says, don't act that way. Don't live that kind of life. He says, you're to be different. Again, Paul qualifies this command. Uh, He says it's something that we have commanded you. It's a direction in which you are required to go. This is an apostolic direction for your life. You're to be about the kind of work that is pleasing to God, designing, cultivating, creating, teaching, creating order, and recreating order, moms of young children. It's a losing battle, but you engage in it every day. You pick up, you clean up, you start over, and you keep teaching and training. It's not glorious. Your hands are dirty at the end of the day. You should wash your hands a lot working with young children. But it is good and it is pleasing to God. It is the kind of living that he wants you to be. This is your business. Don't feel like there's something else I ought to be doing. This is it. It's godly and appropriate. Two things that Paul says, and I'll I'll try to be rapid with these. He says... In verse 12, he says that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Walking is very much a part of the, of, of the life before God. It's, it's the routine description. Remember, this is Enoch walked with God. It was a description of someone who was pleasing to God. And throughout the New Testament, you'll find example after example of this equation of, of walking to say this is the kind of life you're living that's pleasing to God. But in this, in this case, Paul colors it. He says that your walk should be should be proper or fitting or becoming or decent or modest. All would be appropriate translations of that word in in a specific direction towards those who are outside. He's pointing you in the direction of this way in which you work in this world, being a witness, a testimony to others. Your life, how you work, says something to the world around you. And again, think about, think about the qualification of officers. We're, we're coming up on, on officer nominations in the month of December. We're going to begin to 
listen to what God would, would, how he would direct us in this congregation to the men who would be appointed to the service of the church and their qualifications. In particular, let me read you from the, offices, uh, the office of the bishop or the elder, Titus chapter 1. It says, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable. All those things, if you notice, all those qualities have to do with reputation. It has to do with how people see you. Witness matters in terms of our service to God, our ability to convince people, to convict people, to lead people in the direction that they should go. Those qualifications for officers are not qualifications that just belong to officers. They belong to everybody. Is there anyone who shouldn't be the husband of but one wife at a time? Who shouldn't work to have faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination? Should anybody live a life that is blamable, that is not above reproach? Should anyone be greedy or violent or given to wine? No. These are, these are obligations that belong to every Christian. This is an even, not an evangelical, but an evangelistic obedience. It's something that moves people in the world around you to see who you are. Just as Christ says, by this all men will know that we are disciples if we love one another so, they will know that we are disciples of Christ by our quiet working. When that, that last part that he says in verse 12, that you may lack nothing, it points you in that direction of, of self-sufficiency. And so let me just say a few words in closing about what that means. It is not an absolute independence from others. And it's not about having enough savings that, that you never need to ask anyone for anything. It's not about living off the grid, taking up some kind of hermitage, um, you know, getting a massive reservoir of food and water and your own goats and your own garden and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that you can do that if you want to, but not by yourself. Not to go off and live in isolation. You should hear how the reformers condemn the monks for their ridiculous life. They, they use some of the harshest words you can imagine for those that go off the grid and say, we're going to live this special kind of secluded life so that we can pursue holiness. That is not the picture of the holiness. The picture of holiness that you see Paul teaching is one in which we are engaged with our community, in which people can see how we work. Self-sufficiency for a Christian is pulling your own weight. It's using your gifts that have been given to you by God. It is working hard with the time and energy that God has entrusted to you for which you exercise a stewardship. It's earning what you need through legitimate, lawful, useful labor that does other people good. And it's being content with what you earn. It means not being a beggar, not being a manipulator, not being, being an exploiter or a thief. If, if you want good instruction on this, you could go to um, page 958 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. You can go to the back and you see what the larger catechism says in 141 and 142 about what's, what's required and what's forbidden the Eighth Commandment, stealing. And it is instructive. It is highly instructive. And you may need a dictionary to look up some of the words because you may not be sure what, what some of prodigality and, and uh, engrossing commodities and other things like that are, but they're instructive. They tell you about what is fitting and appropriate for a believer. You're called to be independent in the way in which you live, to be sufficient with what we have, to use it well. And at the same time, we're called to do so in dependence on Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again for them. Your work in this world is not merely that which provides you money or keeps you unentangled from civic problems. 
It's the work of every believer to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to show yourself a child of God, to show yourself as someone who's redeemed by Christ, to show yourself a home and a house for the Holy Spirit who is living in you and enables you to work in the way in which you do. You don't do that apart from Christ. You do it in Christ and because of Christ and in so doing that the world will know from you about your Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we need your help because we are lazy, we are sluggards, we find ourselves condemned in scripture by the way in which we work and the way in which we don't work. And we ask that you would help us out of a fear of you and out of a love for our great Savior, according to his example, to heed this instruction from Paul, to be those who make it our ambition to quietly work well in a way that's appropriate for us. We pray that